0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode number 140 for July 4th, 2018. Happy Independence Day. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about CRM and whether it's really historic preservation. So get ready to do some heavy thinking because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in Boise this time. Good morning. Doug in Scotland. Hey, everyone Sonia in Utah hello and Stephen in Calgary hi so I'm getting over a little bit of a cold so I'm gonna minimize what I say on this show and 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 because of that um, we have a, a fortunate circumstance that Bill came up with a nice topic uh, a little while ago and uh, I think we're gonna talk about it today and I'd like to acknowledge that this is the first time and I have to look back in our archives I mean I don't remember the last time all five of us were on the show um, you know everybody probably remembers or maybe doesn't but the original reason I had this many people was so we could at least have you know maybe three on any one recording because everybody has work schedules and things like that especially over the summer you know never expecting all five uh and we used to have something like seven um just for that backup you know um but this is great right summertime June um as we're recording this it's the middle of June I know it's coming out in the early uh July but as we're recording this it's the middle of June and uh it's uh it's great to have all five people on here, so um, and it's kind of weird because it feels like wintertime or something. We never get all five unless it's winter, and it's raining and cold here in Reno, which is also weird. So anyway, uh, Bill, why don't you go ahead and introduce the topic and uh, what you were thinking about um, when you broached it to us
2: so there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why I would think about this, but the topic is basically a questioning of how we all feel when we finished doing CRM and then we see what happens to the site that we worked at. And there's a couple of reasons why I, I thought of this as uh, Chris just said, I'm here in Boise right now. And the site that I did for my dissertation a few years ago that led to, uh, um, creating a historic property here and, uh, preserving a house. Um, I just went by and I saw that they're doing landscaping and they've pretty much annihilated all, if not all, I don't know, a substantial portion, so much that I had to look away of the archaeology. So, you know, the archaeology contributed to the campaign to save this place. Um, you can look it up, it's the Irma Heyman house, uh, and it's one of the second African American historic property in the state of Idaho. And uh they wanted to save it, but the archaeology contributed greatly to the campaign and made uh made the place known to the people who live in the area. So I I mean, it was pretty interesting to see that they, and in the planning meetings, it was just understood, yeah, there's archaeology there, we'll minimize our impact. Yeah, we're just going to do a couple of little bit of excavations here and there. And then I went by and, you know, unbeknownst to me or any of the other archaeologists that were working on this, um, the whole back area seems to be blown out, right? So, you know, first of all, this isn't, that wasn't necessarily a CRM project. It's owned by the city. They can do whatever they want with it. And, um, you know, the, the project that they were doing was not funded by, you know, federal law. There was no federal nexus. They had actually already done archaeology, and I designed it as if it was a data recovery. So if there was data, you know, we did sample and have a good idea of what's there. It's just uh, interesting to see that they, you know, wanted to save the house, and they've done a great job of doing that, but the archaeology component wasn't really a, a serious uh, consideration in the end, and then it got me thinking about some of the stuff that I teach in my class uh, at Berkeley, um, the CRM class or the Heritage Conservation class about learning the laws of historic preservation and the origins of those things coming in the wake of you know urban renewal and a, and a whole bunch of other things that kind of kind of finally culminates in the late '60s to where we have an NHPA, and the whole goal was that communities could finally Take control and save the resources that matter to their own heritage, um, and so there was a whole process, and everything was very clearly defined. But right now, um, uh, it seems like uh, CRM has become kind of the main, you know, uh, focal point or or mechanism for historic preservation in the United States, and we work under these laws. and The idea is that uh, you know archaeology. Uh, is supposed to be identifying sites and those that are really uh, substantial and significant are going to be preserved for the future and that, you know, we're going to do our best. But the actual reality, especially if you've worked in CRM for a long time, it seems like the reality is we do the archaeology and then that that mitigation in quotation marks is all of the historic preservation that that place ever receives and, you know, significant sites get blown away. And so, if you want to stay in CRM, you're going to have to figure out some kind of a way to uh, reconcile that in your own mind, a, a way of working that through logically. But what I want to talk about today is how do we all feel about that?
1: well, bill, let's let's start by defining preservation. like how do you how do you personally define preservation when it re, in regards to an archaeology site? Like, what are the different types of preservation that you think of when you think of preservation? i know I know what my answer is, but i'm I'm curious what yours is.
2: Well, it, uh, you know, like I said, I guess we could split hairs, but really historic preservation, what a lot of people think is building uh, uh, preservation. So, you know, in, in historic preservation, when it comes to buildings and uh, that kind of stuff, there's, you know, preservation, restoration, recreation, and conservation. And so those are all four different, you know, technological, technical uh, definitions that we've all created for when we're treating a, uh, a building. Now, archaeological sites, there's not really recreation of an archaeological site, right? So there's conservation, yeah, and then there's preservation, minimizing the amount of change that happens. But, you know, we can't really treat archaeological sites the same way we would buildings or or structures, right? So I guess that's the, the question is really, uh, how does each community interpret that for their own selves? Because the way it's set up, the practitioners in that area and the people who are administering those properties are really the ones who are kind of making the decisions on that property. And so, uh, you know, in some places they preserve sites in other places. I mean, Doug might be able to tell me a bit more, but in Europe, I don't really think that it's possible for you to preserve every single site because there's sites on sites on sites, you know, thousands of years of, um, history and archeology span all in one spot. And so it's really up to that community to decide, um, you know how much destruction is enough or where we draw the line or anything like that
3: I think that uh some of this like as far as archaeology goes preservation is usually kind of like leave it in place um you know maybe maybe stabilize the surrounding uh the surrounding soils if if you know it's starting to erode out or something like that that um it, as one of the mitigating measures that we can do to uh, mitigate impact is um, uh, Tom King, I think, uh, calls it uh, like flag and avoid. But uh, one of the problems with this, and, and one of the reasons that Tom King has talked against it, is that there's no follow up, right? Like, you know, we can be like, okay, we're going to flag this off and we're going to avoid it, but then another project comes down the pipe that doesn't trigger review, you know, five, 10 years later, two years later, whatever. And there's not necessarily anybody minding the store. Like, you know, like who's, you know, if, if we're trying to preserve it, you know, who's watching it? Um, so flagging and void doesn't really work unless you have like some sort of managerial oversight, which, you know, a lot of uh, municipalities have, you know, a lot of municipalities have some sort of um, archaeological management plan and and someone who who reviews uh, pro- uh particularly city projects that come through come through the pipe to ascertain whether um, you know are these areas theoretically protected are they are, are they not you know um that that sort of
1: thing that's interesting because that we do that a lot out here in Nevada because there's so much land so nine times out of ten when we find something that we determine, either uh, unevaluated because, which I think a lot of people don't, I don't feel like do that anymore. Like if you're out there, you're evaluating the site one way or the other. I, I end up looking at a lot of sites that were from the eighties or even the seventies that were just left unevaluated. It, it's just like, they, they saw something they're like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> so they just said unevaluated. And, well, so, the, and so, re-
3: sometimes that's just a matter of like, you know, yeah, further study needs get done and sure. that's not part of our scope. So, you know, right. so, someone needs to come back and look at it, or you can just redesign your project and avoid it altogether, which, you know, um, particularly if it's, you know, federal land or something like a large landmass, that's pretty easy to do.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the other problems, though, with with the flag and avoid thing is, uh, especially with prehistoric sites, is uh, is erosion. You know, um, we're, we're affecting the landscape, uh, you know, in dramatic ways. We're affecting the climate in dramatic ways. So some of these sites that have been sitting on the surface for thousands of years with virtually, you know, little to no issue with them sitting on the surface for thousands of years in the course of the last 30 years since they were first recorded. And now, you know, in Nevada, just to clarify for people that don't know. Uh, if the site was recorded over 10 years ago, it's a full rerecord if you encounter it again in the field. If you, you know, usually we're looking for previously recorded sites uh, when we're in a project area, we'll be able to do a research and, you know, record search and, and find that out first. And then if it's older than 10 years, recorded more than 10 years ago, then we do a full re-record of it. Well, I mean, a lot of times when we find these sites that were maybe potentially eligible or something like that, uh, and now, because of erosion, because there is a mine there somewhere, there is somebody working near there, and maybe there was BLM vegetation thinning, maybe something happened, I don't know, but, you know, we've affected the landscape, and now the site's not no longer eligible, because it's either we can't find enough of the material, or... Um, you know, whatever was found to trigger potentially eligible or something like that to begin with is is just simply no longer there. Or in some cases, artifacts were collected off of sites. I've seen sites that were recorded three or four times in the past 30 or 40 years. And each time somebody collected something else. And then, and then as you came down the line, the site became less and less eligible because they took everything off of it. <laughs> so it's like, what the hell, you know, Um, it, it it's evaluation changes because of, archaeological practices not because of the site's importance itself it's it's just it's interesting the way that works sometimes i don't know
3: yeah well i i think uh, going back to the 80s there there had been a practice of yeah like oversampling um as a mitigation method mm-hmm. like well we don't actually want to go to like you know come back and excavate the site so they'll just collect everything until there's no site there and um that that predates my career um, but I remember hearing about it and it, um, was very strongly argued against by, uh, various Shippo's, <laughs> um, that, I you imagine. know, th- this is not, this is not good practice, but, uh, yeah, yeah well, in, but in, in your case, because it's, uh, like a land, you know, it's, it's managed land, right? Like there's theoretical some level of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, governmental oversight, that um, a lot of places will actually do site monitoring. Um, you know, not necessarily visiting every site every year, but um, ha- doing the rounds, and uh, you know, just making sure, like you know, every every couple of years, is the, this site still here? Is it eroding out? You know, are there are there potential impacts? Has somebody been you know, you know, tearing it up with their trucks, or you know, what are the you know managerial issues? I I think that, you know, the the real problem is when you start trying to apply these concepts in private land, like there's nothing for that, right? There's no governmental oversight for monitoring the condition of the site or, you know, even making sure that, you know, a flag and avoid works. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, you know, unless you have a monitor on site, flagging and avoiding doesn't always happen like you know it shows up in the plans but what's going on in the ground um you know because a lot of a lot of people working on projects uh, further down the road aren't necessarily looking at the original plans right right
2: yeah but the the other aspect to this too is the fact that we're identifying sites and we're saying they're significant enough to play you know add information in american history but then recommending that we just dig some of it up And that's the preservation. So, you know, they're significant enough that they're they require some kind of archaeology, but they're not significant enough for us to flag and avoid, or to keep, or to protect, or for this to stop the project in any way. I mean, it's it's extremely rare uh, in the situation of uh, a lot of you know infrastructure construction. I mean, if they're if they're past the planning stage and they're going to widen the highway, and you find a nine thousand year old archaic site. They're probably going to figure out some kind of a way to do archaeology on it and treat that as the preservation, rather than redesign. If they've made it to that stage in the process, there's kind of not going to be anything that's going to stop them from just uh, destroying the site, right? So, well, it, but that, that's not it's presented double. as
3: preservation, right? That, that's that's mitigation, which is not the same thing. You know, mit- mitigation is not always preservation, and and um, you know to to carry that forward to um i'm sure you've all seen the the digital scanning that google's been pushing and it's like that's not preservation but digital recording you know scanning you know 3d modeling and stuff like that 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 can be a form of mitigation you're not you're not preserving anything but you you know like sometimes things are at that level where it's not like you know, we, we can't ever touch it. It's that, you know, for archeological sites, we go in and we get the data that made it important. And now we have that data.
2: Yeah. I, I hear that. So, so then, you know, uh, and, and I understand exactly what you're saying, Stephen. I guess, um, uh, how many of us feel like we are actually contributing to preservation then instead of just doing mitigation. Cause I know there's a, there's a, you know, and I had it for many years. There's a, a deep-seated ethos that we are the ones who are preserving these things because without us, they'd be destroyed entirely, and no one would know anything about it. And so, uh, as as years go by, you start to realize, no, actually, we're just mitigating the damage that we're already causing to the world. Right.
3: Well, but I I think a lot of the perspective um, is that we are you know, we're, we're getting more archaeological data. That, that's, that's the uh, kind of the CRM perspective, right? It's like, it's not mm-hmm. a matter of preservation um, that, that a lot of archaeologists really want to go dig up sites and they want to get that data and they want to write it up and, and you know, down the line through synthesis and, and coming up with, you know, better narratives of, you know, what has happened here. Um, you know, whereas preservation would be like, you know, just avoiding it altogether.
0: I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, part of part of mitigating an archaeological site, if you separate the word uh, mitigation from it, is actually ga- gathering the data that would have been lost. That in and of itself is part of preservation. So you are preserving the material culture in some context, which is actually yeah, I, part of cultural resource management and historic preservation, historic context. I mean, I completely if you look at the strict definitions of thing,
3: that, that's not preservation. In what way? I, it's, it's not preservation. Like the, the site is gone, like Bill was saying.
0: So preserving the material culture and the, and, and the potential definition or, or interpretation of what was going on at that site is not considered any form of preservation to you? No. The data is not completely lost. The, no, data, the data is, is there. not
3: lost, But the, but the property itself is gone.
0: Okay, then that—that's the separation, the difference between historic preservation and cultural resource management.
3: Yes, preservation is an aspect of resource management, but not all resource management is preservation. Exactly. You are managing, yeah, you're managing the resource, right?
0: Exactly. You're managing managing portions or or all of the resource.
2: I guess I I guess the biggest thing when it comes to. talking to about archaeological sites as we do about historic properties is those four approaches to treatments of historic properties that i was talking about so you know when it comes to a building you have the option to rehabilitate something or restore it or uh, reconstruct it but you really can't do those kind of things with an archaeological site because once we dig it it's gone so the formal you know way, the mechanistic way that historic preservation works in the United States, you can't really apply most of that stuff to archaeological sites.
0: That's because historic preservation frequently applies to the built environment. Mm -hmm. That's part of its definition.
2: Yeah, but archaeological sites are part of it.
1: That's a good place to stop because Sonia's been itching to give us a preservation definition, and we will do that on the other side of the break, and we'll continue this conversation there. This network is listener-supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.archpodnet.com members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So, check out our memberships at www.archpodnet.com/members today and support archaeological education. That's www.archpodnet.com/members. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at archpodnet.com/shop. That's archpodnet.com/shop. All right. We are back with episode 140 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, and we are talking about CRM as historic preservation. And we were just getting into it in the end there on kind of, uh, you know, we were talking about our, our sort of interpretations of preservation and, and how CRM works and things like that. So, Sonia... Um, you pulled up some some actual definitions of preservation so we can maybe use that to frame some of the rest of our conversation. Um, how is preservation defined?
0: Uh, in general, and remember the Secretary of the Interior Standards, um, they don't seem to have a, an actual definition. They have comprehensive historic preservation planning and historic context and what historic properties are. <laughs> they don't actually have a formal definition of that. But what I have been able to pull out is the the general idea. Of what historic preservation in the U.S. is, so in in essence, it's an endeavor to seek um, or to preserve, conserve, and protect buildings, objects, landscapes, and other artifacts of historic significance. It's uh, it specifically um, refers to the preservation of the built environment and not to um, like forestry wilderness areas um and and other like recreational areas and things like that unless there is part of a there there is a built in part um a built environment as part of that um uh, another uh, and and most of us like to like to think that we know what the definition of cultural resource management is it's a vocation and it's a practice of managing cultural resources um, including its arts and heritage so um it's, it's usually concerned with traditional and historic culture, not necessarily um, um, strictly buildings or, or the built environment. So um, cultural resource management is part of historic preservation, and but not all of that. So it does, it, it, uh, uh, CRM is primarily focused on the material culture of archaeology. Um, and not necessarily all of all of the preservation portion that goes into it, although that is a component of it. So when you when you start talking about uh, the Secretary of the Interior standards and goals with regard to historic preservation, their goals are primarily um, establishing general standards for archaeology and historic preservation. And those standards are focused on historic preservation planning and um, context. Um, and the way to, as we were kind of getting at earlier, is uh, the, to establish context is to not only look at historic records, but also to withdraw the, the uh, material culture from the ground or from the structure itself.
1: All right. So, you know, in the last segment we were talking about preservation, uh, Bill brought this up and uh, because of a historic site that he obviously worked on and, and is, you know, back and, and taking a look at now and, and, and noticing some changes, of course. Uh, but I think the difference, uh, it, when you talk preservation, we, you know, we really have to talk about the difference between like historic preservation and prehistoric preservation too, you know, and maybe make that definition clear because I, I do think that there's, you know, there's two primary ways that you can, um, that you can, Preserve, well, maybe three primary ways you can preserve a prehistoric site. One of those ways can be to dig it up, because if that's going to save it, then you preserve the data. If that's the way, if that's one way you want to kind of look at that, you preserve the data by recording the data and then taking it that way. Because if you hadn't dug it up, we don't have subsurface techniques good enough to actually even tell what's under the ground um, you know, down to the fine level, obviously GPR can find some things and some other methods can find other things, but the, the actual detail, we still need to excavate to find out what's actually under the ground. So what are we preserving? If we don't, um, actually dig it up, we don't actually know, you know, we're, we're preserving based on what we see on the surface or on random sampling or whatever other sampling strategy we used. So, so that's one type of thing. The other, another type of preservation that I know is done a lot in the Southeast where I worked, um, for, you know, the first part of my CRM career is to just actually build a building over the top of it. <laughs> it sounds kind of weird and I don't think it actually works because um, you know, if you've got a deeply buried site, uh, things get buried pretty quickly over there because of hurricanes and things like that, especially on the coastal plain. If you've got a deeply buried site and you put a slab over the top of it and then a building over the top of that, nobody's ever going to get to that site. But the chances of anybody knowing once that building is destroyed, and the slab is destroyed and something else is put there, the chances of anybody knowing there was actually a site under there. It's like kind of what's the point? You know what I mean? Um, and then the other way is to just avoid it, you know, avoid it and and move on, you know, with the flag and avoid things. So that's prehistoric preservation. Historic preservation is completely different, obviously. I mean, we could go through and kind of argue that if I take a 3D scan, you know, detailed 3D scan of an entire building before they knock it the hell down maybe that's the digital preservation I can do on it or something like that, but that's not preserving it for the community and for the enjoyment of others to come unless we live in a virtual reality world. So, you know, who knows? Um, anyway, I just had to get those thoughts out there. Doug, I think you had some thoughts.
4: Yeah. Uh, I have two, two comments. Uh, one is I agree with Chris um, on the aspect of, I don't think when we call it, when we build something over a, a site and say it's preserved, that's actually preservation (laughs) Uh, mainly because we, we actually have no idea what's happening to that site. And um, I I would prefer to actually see someone go back and look at these sites and see what's happening. I mean, you are dropping tons upon tons of material on top of a site Um, you're possibly pumping out groundwater or changing, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, That's going to have some sort of impact on the site And we actually have no idea what that impact is. We just kind of assume that, oh, we've put a building over it. It'll be safe. Um, It'll still be stuck in the ground. Um, And I could think of a million ways that having a building there would easily cause damage to a site uh, from compression to, I mean, you know, if you put a building there, maybe it has a basement, maybe the uh, the water table's a bit high so you have to start pumping it out. Well, then you're going to dry out the site, uh, destroy whatever organics is there. I mean, there's a... uh, quite a few different ways so i am agreeing 100 percent with chris on um you know a building on top of something is not preservation uh but this being me i might also disagree with chris there it is um yeah yeah <laughs> couldn't, couldn't couldn't leave it alone you know we have to keep a good to keep our tradition going there chris that's right and i i really hate so i what you're describing is i've heard What they usually call in um, the UK preservation by recording, and I—that's not preservation. That's not the definition. And I know we can go back and forth on definitions and stuff like that. But if you if you're you know quote unquote preserving by recording, you're actually destroying everything and taking a little bit of information and calling that preservation, but it's not. Preservation is keeping everything exactly the same. Uh, so this is maybe it's not so much disagreement with uh, Chris as it's a bugbear of mine when everyone's like, "Oh, preservation by recording, that's not preservation. That's that's maybe mitigation. That's uh, that's doing archaeology, but that is in no way preservation. That's just my two cents."
2: I guess maybe the issue at the heart of this thing is selective preservation, which I don't even know if there's a term for that. But it's definitely part of the whole selecting what narrative you want and part of the entire placemaking process and the whole process of creating a narrative that you need in order to get it past the you know uh, advisory council or uh, I guess the National Park Service administers the um, the national register, right? But at any rate, you have to create a justifiable argument for preserving this place. And you know, in this case, they've decided to, Uh, focus on the house and the architectural component of this multi-component site. So, you know, we're talking about prehistoric, historic. There's plenty of sites in Arizona that have uh, Pueblos, ruins, mounds, and all kinds of stuff that are either architectural remains or architectural ruins that uh, get a different kind of treatment. If we were to preserve a place, um, an archaeological site, they'll get a different form of treatment for the architectural remains sometimes that's just uh conservation or sometimes it's conservation as if they're going to fix the adobe or whatnot um to the way it was in the period of significance other times it's just to allow it to decay and um just you know manage the site by avoiding it not letting people dig in it and yeah there's going to be ground squirrels and the adobe is going to melt and everything but they're just you know keeping that place uh safe uh, in other cases we do excavation right and so when it comes to that they're going to excavate probably the archaeological component the inside and the outside of the uh pueblo walls or the adobe walls or something like that but they're probably going to leave the actual architectural component there with very little analysis on the architectural component so uh the it, it's uh You know, all of us CRMers in every way are choosing and selecting what pieces of this historic site we want to preserve and in what way we want to do that. And I guess that is maybe at the heart of the NHPA that communities and uh, uh, administering agencies are the ones who make those decisions and they make those decisions hopefully for the community. I mean, we can imagine that the community is getting input. But really it's kind of CRMers deciding what's the most significant aspect of this site we've decided is significant and then trying to preserve pieces of that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that.
3: Um, and, and I think that that's why we have, or you have, I'm in Canada now, uh, the the four criteria, right? It's like they, they address different aspects of potentially the same property. Um And, and, you know, what's more important? Is the ability to provide data more important than its association with um, important an important person or event? You know, as far as communities go, um, when, when you start getting into, like, a more heritage-focused aspect, that, um, you know, maybe the, you know, data that archaeology can provide is, is only of, you know, a limited use. And, and maybe it's you know, oftentimes uh, archaeology is, you know, of primary, primary interest to archaeologists, not necessarily the, the greater communities. I, I, I kind of want to go back, though, uh, on a couple of points. Um, first, uh, you know, we briefly touched on the capping thing. And and um, I, I don't necessarily agree with, like, slapping a whole building on top of it, but it, it's like cappings actually in in my mind, capping is actually a reasonable, um, mitigating, uh, technique, but, you know, it has like really narrow window of opportunities. Um, like th- there've been a number of studies involving, you know, uh, bear- intentionally burying sites and, uh, you know, putting roads on them and driving on them and, and, and doing various things, um, with varying degrees of success and, and, you know, and most of these studies uh, were done in the 70s and 80s. And, and I think maybe a few that I'm familiar with it were done in the 90s. Um, and, and they, you know, they, they capped them, left them capped for like 10 years or 15 years, and then went back and excavated them. And, and actually, there's a great one out of California where um, they actually had to, like, side excavate because there was a highway still on top of it. They didn't tear up the highway, <laughs> you know, and, and to, to judge, like, you know, what are the effects of of, you know, these capping techniques on sites. And in some cases they work well, in some cases they, they didn't work at all. And, and it really kind of comes down to um, like when you design this, because this is a designed mitigation um, that, you know, really need a lot of engineers involved um, who have better, understanding of like the engineering effects than like your average archaeologist and and come up with ways uh, to deal with you know these potential issues. Um, but then, in the long term, uh, again, it's it's essentially kind of a flag in the void because yeah, the site's still there. And, and you have to have some level of management plan of how these things will be dealt with further down the line because if it's private land, and or nobody's watching this, you know, watching it. Eventually, you know, people will be like, well, hey, we build a building there. There must be nothing there. And, and you really need to be able to, you know, keep that in mind.
1: I, I want to address that real quick, Stephen, because that's such a good point. Um, because I, I agree with you too. I, I think that, um, in some cases, capping you know capping can actually be can actually be good you know but not in not in all cases i think doug hit it on the head when he said like compression and things like that especially you look at it in the southeast where i said that i first encountered that in as commonplace when i say they put a building on top of it i mean like you know a a several hundred thousand ton walmart slab you know on top of several sites um which who knows like with runoff and things like that and the, the compression over time is that actually doing damage to projectile points? Eh, probably not. To pottery, probably, um, but who knows? So is that preservation? Um, but like you said, it's really it really goes down to um, it's not as common of a practice for us to just sit and think about that. When I when I go to do an evaluation, especially for like a cell tower or something like that, and I see this huge, you know, relatively modern built environment, and I'm like, okay, there's nothing here. You know that's I mean that's my first thought because I see buildings I see buildings I assume if those buildings aren't historic that there's nothing there you know it's not right on the top of my head to think, oh, maybe there's sites preserved under these slabs for these buildings you know that's just not something that we we commonly think about, so it would have to be like Sonia is mentioning in the chat here that she's uh successfully advocated for um, capping one or two sites under some highways uh, or at least in one case, and like you mentioned Steve in that other one and that's that's probably. That that's probably almost um, I don't want to say worse, but you really have to be on top of it because a highway is generally built, you know, unless you know it's like a bypass or something like that. But often highways are built up from smaller and smaller roads through time, right? I mean, a lot of the main highways we have were built because that's where the thoroughfares were, you know, back in the day. Um, So there's a good chance that if somebody caps a site with a highway that it's going to be there for hundreds and hundreds of years until we have flying cars, and we don't need highways anymore. And then, you know, then who knows by, when all that time goes by and they rip up the highway, is anybody even going to remember there was a site under there? So is that preservation, you know? And, and I don't know. It's a good, it's a good well, question. And,
3: and that would have to be part of the management plan, right? It's like, how do you sure. deal with the deaccessioning of existing highways? Right. Right. Um, I, I would like to um ooh, just looked at the time. Uh, maybe this is yeah. maybe this will be a, a good point for uh, the next.
1: Yeah, let's let's do that. Let's let's take a break, our final break. And then when we come back on the other side of this, we'll wrap up this discussion on is CRM actually historic preservation? It's a good topic. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about Wild Note? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS, or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job. Then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills if you are a professional subscriber to the apn at arcpodnet.com slash members then you get all of team black's offerings for free as part of your membership we have team black memberships coming that will give the same for the apn so 20 dollars a month gets you all the apn swag and extras plus free training from team black so check out arc for more information and level up your skill set today that's arc now back to the show All right. Welcome back to the Sierra Mark podcast, episode 140. And we were finishing up our discussion on CRM as historic preservation. And right before we ended the last segment, Stephen, you were about to launch into a, uh, a, a brilliant discussion. I'm sure. Go ahead. Or, you know, tirade, whatever. <laughs> tirade, um, whatever. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, well, and, and cause I kind of felt the need to clarify when I interrupted Sonia in the first segment about like, but that's not preservation. Um, and, and, you know we've been kind of dancing around that a little bit and you know and, and uh debating the notions of like preserving data um and and preserving artifacts and versus uh, pre, uh you know um uh preserving sites and and i think the reason part of the reason uh, i'm i'm big on like that's not preservation um comes from a couple of different places um the first is that for CRM, particularly the National Historic Preservation Act, is we are looking at, you know, the historic properties are places. Like we, we, we you know, we're evaluating them against the National Register of Historic Places criteria. We, we you know, like we're talking about places, not not artifacts, not, um, you know, not, not data, but but the places themselves, um, and and by that by that criteria, you know, thinking about it in those terms, we're not, you know, like excavating up a site does not preserve that site. I mean, yeah, we have to excavate a little bit maybe to you know ascertain whether whether the site's important or not. But really, what it comes down to is that place itself. Um, and then the other the other thing, the other reason is um when you have to deal with historic buildings say like they have very narrow window of what counts as preservation and what is actually reconstruction or you know like so if if i were to replace portions of a building that's not preservation if i'm going to you know reconstruct the older look and feel of a building but but it requires that i remove um uh you know, like original material, that's not preservation. Um, that, that, you know, reconstruction is a, a way to manage these historic resources, these cultural resources, but it's not considered preservation. Preservation comes first and then, you know, down, down the line, like recon, uh, reconstructions, you know, next and, and further down the line. And, and for us, that, that kind of works the same way. That you know preservation is in place, and and yeah, we, we don't necessarily know what's there exactly, right? Because we haven't gone in to to recover that you know recover that data. Um, but it, it's it's you know preservation is theoretically the first thing in line. Um, you know the SAA code code of ethics conduct ethical conduct something like that ethical principles
2: yeah i don't know yeah yeah
3: um but but like one of the codes is you know like you know particularly in the 90s when when i was you know a student coming up it, it was all about like preserving the past for the future and and you know don't excavate the entirety of a site unless you have to that you know first and foremost comes that preservation you know leaving some of that site there and and whether that means it's gonna degrade naturally and, and, you know, we try to prevent erosion and, you know, compression and, you know, looters, um, and, and unnecessary excavation. But then if that's not a viable option, we move down the line, you know, what comes next? Well, we can excavate that site and get, you know, uh, useful data, hopefully useful data, uh, data we presume will be useful. Um, it, you know, and, 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 you know, maybe we can only we only have the budget to uh, you know excavate a sample of it. So this is the next step down the line, and 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 that's kind of how it works, right? Is that as part of the resource managing? You know, we have to approach it as you, you know, like there are, we can't always do the best thing, but we we try to we try to do you know
2: good, I guess. Yeah, so that brings, I mean, that brings me to the reason why we're even having this conversation, because sometimes there's an emotional effect that happens when you work on a site. We've all worked on a lot of sites before, and sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any attachment at all to these sites. They're supposedly National Register eligible. So they met the criteria. That's the reason why we actually dug them, because they they met the criteria of what the United States would want to preserve, Right. But then we dig on them and do the work and everything, and we don't necessarily feel any kind of an attachment, right? But then there's these other sites, and you know, you know you've know, you had it in the past, where you watch that Walmart slab go in, or you watch that pipeline go through there, and you're just shaking your head like, you know, that was the only way that we could have preserved this. I mean, I, I have a feeling this community would have really liked to know about that um, archaic agricultural village or this important burial ground that we just removed all these burials it would have been great if they still had those things but instead we now have a pipeline or another subdivision and i guess that's the the part of preservation that uh you know we don't necessarily talk about if we're preserving these things so that people can have pride in their heritage and you know we've kind of in some ways privileged uh the built environment because you can still see it but in some cases we keep the archaeological site there too and Create these memorial landscapes and other things for people to remember these places. You know that that's a drop in the bucket compared to the tens of the thousand sites that we take down each year, or that maybe don't meet meet the cut because of our definitions of significance or whatever. But someone would have really cared about.
3: Well, I think that's a a major issue with the way that we do uh, management review. Um, That you know, is there a point? You know, like the whole kind of the, for me, um, one, one of the notions for like, you know, cultural resource management, like all, all these review laws, uh, cultural resources, uh, natural resources, um, you know, we, we have an entire review process for, you know, the under the broader environmental umbrella, right? And, and that, you know, the, the big question is is there a point? where the proponent doesn't get to do their project. And, and if the answer is yes, more often it's yes, because they don't want to pay for it. Right. It's, it becomes yeah. too expensive. And, and, you know, but is there a point where like, no, 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 I, I don't care how much money you're going to toss at it. This site is too important. And not all sites are going to be that important. Even, you know, eligible sites. Right.
2: Yeah. You know, when that happens, we've, we all know the famous cases, right? African Burial Ground is an excellent example. And there's you know, probably been 10 African Burial Ground-style uh, projects. We also know the thing that went down with the Dakota Access Pipeline and how that didn't turn out the same way as the African Burial Ground. So we know there are sites where the community does come out in full force, and in some cases they do actually preserve the site. But I guess another part is is thinking about what happens to us if if a lot of the um, CRM work is done under the National Historic Preservation Act or other preservation acts. We're kind of the de facto preservationists for archaeology sites. Uh, and so, like you were saying, we try to do good enough. Nobody's perfect, right? And depending on the project and the situation, the political pressure and the financial pressure and stuff – you know, we just try to do the best that we can, and I can I can understand that. But but what I've noticed a lot of times uh, among people who've been doing this for a long time is there's this like there's this defeatist mentality, and there's this idea that, oh, they're just gonna destroy it anyway. Well, who cares? You know, we're just gonna record this thing and move on to the next one. And I'm not saying that everybody has that, but I have noticed it. Uh, you know, in a healthy dose throughout CRM that, you know, people work on sites and they see them get destroyed again and again, these amazing places that they're probably the only ones that will ever be able to experience, uh, over the years, there's just kind of this mentality and I don't know if that's necessarily good for CRM.
3: Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I, I think there's also the mo- mentality of, um, a lot of archaeologists, particularly in CRM, you know, they're, they're people who like to dig up sites and find stuff. And preservation doesn't doesn't allow for that, right? Like, uh, you know, flag and avoid is the easiest things, the cheapest thing, you know, we can work with our clients. But really, what we want is to for them to not avoid it. So you can go in there and dig it up. Because that's fun. Because that's fun. And that helps pay the bills, right? Like that does it, it tend to be the big ticket I, objects um but you know like that there's the conundrum right like you know why are we doing that w- what's in it for us w- you know where is you know like us getting data versus us preserving that data or preserving those sites and and how do we play that out that that's not yeah. something we we regularly address <laughs> as crm archaeologists
1: yeah
2: yeah. And our quest to, you know, pay the bills, but also to have fun doing so is done at the sake of, you know, other people's heritage. Right. Cause a lot of times we don't live in those communities. We just show up with a shovel or a backhoe and do our job, then get in the truck and drive back to wherever we live and uh, sit around telling the stories of the, all the awesome stuff that we found. You, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. 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 Uh, is that, is that okay? Is it, and on the other hand, too, if the one bit of joy that you get is doing what you want, which is uh, doing archaeology, even though you know it's going to get destroyed for something that you don't necessarily agree with, I mean, it's not like we're, we're doing work to create more park spaces and schools, you know, or uh, housing for people who need it. A lot of times we're building yet another subdivision, yet another lane on a highway that's already full of people. You know, yet another thing that we don't necessarily, as far as many archaeologists who tend to be a little bit more environmentalist and uh, left-leaning, maybe sometimes the stuff that we're making way for isn't the kind of stuff that we actually like or will ever use or even agree with being created. But we've got to pay our bills, and you know, we always wanted to do archaeology, and this is kind of the only way. So we're we're in the situation where we're supposed to be the ones who are preserving things but we're, you know, motivated by our own enjoyment of doing archaeology, but also that we have to pay our bills. Is that the kind of preservation that communities need? A
4: a little bit to riff off of um, uh, Bill there is, I know, so this is the CRM podcast, and we've been mainly talking about this from, you know, archaeology or historical preservation or buildings or whatever, you know, heritage-based sort of views, but are are people in general happy with how we do planning and construction uh, I, I think we should answer that because you know we tend to silo ourselves into heritage but i do wonder if you know if we're having this conversation are is the environmental sector having this conversation you know natural heritage not you know us like there's a lot of other people affected by all of these all this construction and do we actually feel like there's a good process that puts communities at the heart of it? Or is it mainly we kind of do a little bit of mitigation for communities, but really it's all about whoever's building it. They're the ones who are meant to benefit the most. Yeah, I I can answer that. The answer is no,
2: because I'm not happy whatsoever. Yeah. I'm not happy at all with any of the, the, planning and stuff that's going on in any of the communities where I live
1: well here's the here's the classic problem with preservation though is uh and and let's just take any archaeology site or historic building or whatever the, the people who aren't happy with it are the ones that want it preserved because it's never good enough right it's never enough preservation for to you know to make them happy because there's not enough money there's not enough time whatever the case may be it's never good enough and the people who aren't affected by it they're not happy they just don't care you know what i mean so it's either like people don't care or they're unhappy in general i think uh, about preservation and, and and what goes on um which is a really sad state of affairs i wish there was a better way we could we could handle all of this but that's that's preservation in a nutshell right there too you're only going to preserve stuff as long as somebody cares about it the minute someone stops caring about the preservation of x thing whether it's a prehistoric historic building whatever the case may be, the minute somebody dies, that was the last person that cared about that and nobody cares. Well, the next time it comes under the the chopping block or the next time it comes under the bulldozer's blade, there's not going to be anybody there to stop it. And that's a simple fact of preservation right there.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. We should ask Native Americans about that. They never stopped caring and their stuff gets dug up every week.
1: Well, and that's the good thing about Native Americans versus, I guess, uh, I don't know, non-Native Americans, (laughs) for for lack of a better word. Um, The great thing, that's what I love about Native Americans is because they have had a cohesive sort of you know, culture that they claim going back. If we had, if other cultures had that sort of cohesiveness going back, but it ends up just being a generation or two, you know, so Native Americans have a lot more power than, than some people think they do. Um, and, and because it's because of the way that they think about that stuff. So I totally agree. You know, they, they are holding all the cards in most cases.
4: Hey, surprise, surprise. I'm going to disagree with you, Chris. Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. It's just uh, one. I think that's a bit of a simplification in that, like a lot of a lot of Native Americans' past is quite contentious and quite contentious among different groups. Um, like just being in the Southwest, all the different pueblos, and you know, there's a lot of history and who did this to who and who claims what. Um, it, there's a lot of contention about claiming whose heritage is whose. Uh, so I don't think it's quite that easy. And then, so if we were to switch that around, you know, I'm based in Scotland. It's it's basically the same people for a very long time with a little bit of intermarriage, but stuck on an island. So lots of, lots of the same people, you know, marrying each other. It goes back, but <laughs> they have the exact same issues. Um, like having sort of depth does not do does not change any of the issues that we we've been discussing are the same issues that are happening over in this country um with a different history. I mean there's a different history but it's the same issues occurring. So I I I'm not sure if I agree with your statement there.
1: I think I meant more in general because you're absolutely right. The more overlapping you have of Native American cultures on an area especially ones that have been in the same place for thousands of years, you know, they've overlapped territories, you know, thousands of times. So I think I meant a little more broadly that, you know, uh, when we look at some areas, even some neighborhoods, let's say in, in cities, it's only a few generations back that people are like, oh, yeah, this is my place. And then things could things could change, you know, gentrification, whatever you want to say, things change. And it's only a few generations back. But, uh, you know, Native Americans in general seem to agree that, oh, yeah, that's Native American. We're going to preserve that. You know, sure, we might be arguing about whose tribe it belongs to and when it belongs to them, but it's ours. So let us deal with it. <laughs> That's I think I'm in a little more broad sense of the term. So um, well, we're about done with this topic, uh, I know we could keep arguing about this left and right. But are there any really, really, really quick final thoughts on this in the last like 30 seconds?
3: Yeah, I got one. And, and, and this is aimed at Bill um, that, you know, part, part of what caused this is is that, uh as part of a preservation for building um you know bill had done some archaeology work and then come back to find out that you know while the building's being preserved the the archaeology is not um but uh say i'm kind of thinking about it in terms of like you know i would like to think that you know potentially uh the work that bill had done contributes to the interpretation of that of that structure um and and you know is that the is that good enough? Like, you know, we, you know, Bill worked towards, you know, helping to interpret this structure using archeology span and maybe not all of the archeological components are are being preserved, but there is some aspect of that working towards the greater treatment of that particular property. And I I don't know that that has an answer. Bill has an answer, but I, I thought I'd toss that out there.
2: No, you're definitely right. The entire campaign, the public archaeology stuff, it really actually you know, brought this to the community's light, and it did help further a much longer campaign to save that house. They'd been working for a long time, but they were mainly working from the historic preservationists aspect, and they weren't necessarily on television, and children weren't coming with their families and stuff, and so really there wasn't the community buy-in to push for this. But then after the project, the, it, there was a lot more. Uh, And so I do feel like I contributed to it and, you know, we do have artifacts and archeological data that's not going to go away because it's been stored at a, um, at a repository. And so, you know, I did preserve a piece of it and everything. Uh, You know, I guess the reason I wanted this conversation is because a lot of us are taught in school that CRM is part of historic preservation, but um, it's much more complicated than that. And having conversations like this are, a good idea because a lot of us do think that we're saving sites only to find out 30 or 40 years later that, you know, kind of, we could have done something differently, or maybe we saved the sites for ourselves rather than communities. So this is maybe a, a kind of a reflexive discussion about something that we do every day.
1: All right. Well, that is a great point to end this discussion on. And please leave in the comments or send us an email, uh, you know, wherever you want. You can find it in the show notes. And uh, let us know what you think about this. The Twitter handles for our hosts with Twitter handles uh, are up on the show notes as well. So you can comment there um, or comment on Facebook, on the page, wherever you see We want to know what your definition of preservation is and how you wrestle with these topics. So thanks, and we'll see you again in two weeks. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com dot com slash members get some swag and extra content while you're there send us show suggestions and interview suggestions we want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere and we want to know what you want to know about thanks to everyone for joining me this week thanks also to the listeners for tuning in and we'll see you in the field goodbye
2: bye bye take it easy bye so maybe
4: he says maybe maybe not (laughs) 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 goodbye everyone (laughs)